Hello everyone, this is Ethan Gibson, your host and Berkeley's Place volunteer. Welcome to another episode of Pet School 101, a Berkeley's Place podcast. As we continue to navigate in this time of pandemic, it has been necessary to be creative on how we reach the communities we serve, and we hope that these podcasts will do just that. Today I am looking forward to speaking with another member of the Berkeley's Place executive team. Shortly, I will chat with Nina McLaughlin, a director on the Berkeley's Place Board of Directors, as well as the First Nations liaison for the foundation. We will chat about a brand new initiative that the foundation launched this week on March 1st. So, without further delay, I would like to introduce you all to our guest on the podcast, Nina McLaughlin. Thank you, Nina, for the gift of your time today. Let's get started. Hello, Nina. How are you today? I'm great, thanks, Ethan. How are you? I'm doing wonderfully as well. Uh, are you ready to get started? Absolutely. Okay. Nina, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? So, my journey into the world of dogs began when I did my career, my 12-year career as a travel agent, because I started uh-huh. a family. And two of my senior dogs passed away, so I found myself looking for a new puppy and a new family member, which led me to rescue. Adopting one puppy soon led to adopting a second puppy, which soon led to fostering. And I slowly started fostering more and more dogs, taking on harder and harder behavior cases. And that slowly turned into me deciding, I kind of need to learn a little bit more about this behavior stuff. But I did join a group, or I, I applied for the Karen Pryor Academy. Mm-hmm. And I graduated in 2018 with my dog. And when I graduated from there, during that process, I also decided to leave rescue for moral and ethical differences. Mm-hmm. And so I began to work with five other fantastic women, and we created a group called the Alberta Pet Education Society. And our biggest goal within that was not to be a public group or to be a rescue, but to really help focus on educating the different groups within the animal welfare industry. That's wonderful. And then are you able to just quickly give us an idea of what a KPA designation is? Absolutely. So Karen Pryor Academy is the name of the school. And Karen Pryor is the woman who essentially coined the term clicker training. So back in the 80s, she's the one that took the science and really scientific verbal talk and turned it into a methodology. And then it went out to the world and a lot of different trainers were able to put their input in and had different data and facts and everyone kind of came up with these different methods. So I went to a school where there was nine months of theory that we did, and so learning mm-hmm. the science, the ins and outs of how the actual learning occurs in the brain, what the clicker does, how we can start to look and be more proactive with animals instead of working on the defensive. And so Lovely. when I was done, yeah, it was, it's, a, it's a different way of looking at it. And so mm-hmm. when I was done with my theory, I flipped over and I did my in-person testings for yep. both how I teach and how my dog was able to perform. So she was an 18 month or with me for only 18 months when she completed her exam. And mm-hmm. she was a First Nations dog. She was taken from a First Nations community with support of the community. And she came mm-hmm. into our home and she wasn't exactly snuggly, cuddly dog at that time when I took her to school, but she was able to float those amazing feats and she was able to ace her test. That's wonderful to hear. 
Uh, and then, as we record this, March 1st, we'll see the public launch of the new Berkeley's Place program, the First Nation Cooperative and Collaborative Broad Spectrum Pet Education Program. And we're anxious to learn more about that in today's conversation. Can you tell us a bit about what sets this program apart from what is currently being done by rescue groups providing support to First Nation communities? Yes, thank you. Really, the whole idea behind this program is to work collaboratively within the different groups that we partner with. So we really do want to make sure that this is a partnership and it's everybody working together from the First Nations community within our education programs and then through the rescues that we work with. We really, really focus on building relationships, building trust within the community and having open and honest conversations. Many, many hands allow for lighter work. And so we're able to kind of spread out the amount of work that might need to be done within different programs and allow everyone to shine with what they're best suited to do. Education component is absolutely huge to us. So everything that the rescues do from spay and neuters to deworming, all of that kind of stuff, we have education behind it so that we can help answer the whys to why things are happening or why we recommend these vaccines and not just kind of forcing ideas and things on people. Mm-hmm. And then all of our programs are, are really based on sustainability. So making sure that this is a program that we're not just able to offer for a short period of time and get people needing that supply and then not no longer being able to offer it. Mm-hmm. And then what was your inspiration for starting the initiative in general? Well, as I mentioned, I did leave a rescue. And shortly after leaving them, I was at one time their First Nations liaison. Shortly mm-hmm. after leaving there, I received started receiving phone calls from the gentleman that I worked with out in the community. And he was, unfortunately, um, told that they were going to cease sending out the food that they were once supplying. So mm-hmm. when I was coordinating, I was sending out truckloads of food every couple of weeks and people were able to come get their food and feed their animals and when rescue or when somebody seizes that suddenly these people are now looking for new new supports new reasons and I mean Mm -hmm. everyone's using the food program for different reasons I've met people that with all the recalls they just simply don't feel educated enough in choosing a food for their dog that's not going to make them sick their families, it becomes a financial issue. So when people start to struggle like that, I, I just had a really hard time watching people that were in the support suddenly start to struggle. So the ladies at the Alberta Pet Education Society and myself started to network and find different solutions and food programs that we could offer. And knowing that we're a small group of people, we really made sure that it was going to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. Berkeley's Place was the first group that really jumped in with us and Lillian just straight ahead, right? Let's just get the, let's get all the programs that we possibly need. Let's really get some education in there. And we were able to see some big changes and really make some some big help. So I was more than happy. And the the girls at APES were just thrilled to bring this program over to Berkeley Place and and make it a big collaboration. Uh, And then there are terms that are often used in common conversation that I wanted to talk to you quickly about. Uh, Can you speak to why terms like res dogs, target communities, or outreach shouldn't or aren't used in the program? Words hold a lot of power. And mm-hmm. when we start to use words that can make people feel like they're looked down upon or that could be taken as derogatory, we really start to break down that trust and that open communication. If I'm, if I'm calling you a target, I'm essentially calling you a program or a project. And 
being the person that's being called the target, it often leaves you feeling like you're you're just kind of somebody's charity. And oftentimes people are very shy and they're, they don't want to be asking for the help or, you know, they don't, don't want to be asking these questions and they often feel embarrassed to begin with. So to make it really focus on the partnership and the fact that there's that respect and using terms that are respectful is very much the way that we like to call it. So we don't call it an outreach program. We're not here to give you a handout. We're here to help you out. We're here to give you supports and eventually help you to stand on your own two feet. Mm-hmm. Res is a very derogatory term in the fact that we're you know, kind of using those other, there's there's much better terms that we can be using, like calling it a nation, calling it a community, um, really just empowering it and using our words for the better and not to degrade and, and belittle. Mm-hmm. Well, and I have to thank you because I've learned a lot from what I've seen of the program and I used to say some of those terms and it's been a very eye-opening experience so thank you very much. Well thank you for changing your words I appreciate that. Of course. Uh, Why are feeding programs not solving the issues in First Nation communities and how is the program different in this regard? We've followed a couple different groups we've been so honored to have different groups invite us out and see their programs and let us learn from them as well and a lot of times, the easiest and the, the solution that most see is to meet a store or a central location, and they have the food supports there, which I do support in that going to people's homes, again, we can we can start to get those defensive walls up. If I just knock on your door and assume you need something, it's not a fair assumption. Mm-hmm. So we meet at a central location typically, and rescues are busy. At the end of the day, there's a lot going on on those days. And so they're giving people bags of food and, you know, they might be trying to have a conversation, but there's lots of people and they might be doing intakes of animals and there's there's always different things going on. So mm-hmm. food typically goes home and often the view is, you know, you rip open a bag of food, you dump it out, dogs will be able to eat as they're hungry. And what's not kind of always seen is the magpies come in, the other dogs come in. So one bag of food that might be able to easily last the family two weeks is now lasting maybe three or four days. Mm-hmm. And so where our program is a little bit different is, is twofold. We have those conversations. So if you come and you need some food, I ask you, you know, how many dogs do you have? And what kinds of dogs or what's your best guess? And that's us learning about them because we want to learn about them. And next mm-hmm. time you come, we want to ask you, you know, how are Frank, Joe, and Steve? And, you know, we want, we really want those relationships. We want to make friends with everyone that we're working with. So then we're able to, you know, say, okay, so if you've got two German shepherds, we recommend this kind of a feeding schedule. Here's you know, X amount of bags that will last you until we come back. Here's a dish for your dog and here's a scoop so that you're making sure that you're you're portioning those out easily and and the same every day for your dog. Mm-hmm. And it just allows uh, more of that sustainability. Of course, that sounds wonderful. Uh, in relation to our companion animals, it has been said that you can save a life by putting some time into training. What basic tips can be offered to communities to help ensure their animals are tucked in safe for the night, as it were? One of my favorites, and I've gone to one too many of those midnight calls of a dog that's been hit by a porcupine. Porcupines Mm -hmm. are nocturnal, and so they come out at night typically is when a dog is going to get poked by one. What I recommend to families when they come and get food at the the feeding program is if you start your dog on a regular schedule... And dinner time is always right before sundown. Your dog will be home in your yard. You can have them, you know, in their dog house or in their home 
before the sun goes down and those nocturnal animals come out and they, they could potentially get themselves in a little bit more trouble at night. <laughs> Isn't that the case for everyone? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> uh, and then elders play a pivotal role in the health and the wellness of their communities. Why is it important to work with elders and chiefs and council when offering programs to the nation members? This really boils down a lot to transparency and respect. We That is their land, and we don't want to be entering on their land unwelcome. We want to mm -hmm. be showing a united front to everybody within that community that we aren't here on our own agenda. We are here with the direction of your leaders. We want that direction. We have our ideas. We have different ideas and solutions. But if we sit down at the table and that's not going to work for that community, then it's brainstorming, and it's coming up with a new solution that's going to work. So really having that support from chief and council and the band members really helps this program come, up, come alive and really work. And, you know, if somebody doesn't need the support, but they see this person might, they can at least help them send them in, in a direction and know that we're going to offer them unbiased information. It's not going to be coming in any kind of judgment. And we're going to work with them individually to help come up with any solutions that we can. That's great to hear. Uh, and many animals in the First Nation communities are free-roaming, yet are owned and loved dogs. How can guardians benefit from having their dogs perhaps microchipped by Berkeley's place through this initiative? One misconception is that dogs roam because they're unloved or that they don't have a home. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. on a lot of First Nations communities, there aren't any bylaws, which means that these dogs have the legal right to roam. Without bylaws, there is nobody, you know, picking up these dogs and those those dogs are doing their doggy thing. And I, I do see the other side in it in that these dogs are doing what dogs love to do. They're getting lots of enrichment from their environment because they're out sniffing and foraging and doing very natural dog behaviors. They're out having very natural interactions with other dogs, other animals, other humans. And so they kind of do their thing and their backyard's just really, really big. And so, unfortunately, sometimes people go through, they assume these dogs are unloved or un unowned, and they pick them up thinking they're rescuing them, or rescues also, unfortunately, sometimes go in and take these animals. They are owned, and so a lot of times when families in the communities get a dog, it's because their neighbor or their friend or their family member had a litter of puppies and they're going to get one. There isn't paperwork. There isn't any documentation that shows that this property as a dog is in the eyes of the law belongs to them so mm -hmm. our program allows them to microchip their dog and gives them that legal guardianship to date we have been able to return dogs to back to their guardians who were removed from their communities and we were able to work with the guardians prove ownership and in some cases we have um, gone a little bit further as well as far as it being a stolen property so it's really important that there's something for them to be able to stand up and say, no, this is my dog and help empower them to be able to make those choices. Mm -hmm. There have been cases where rescues have microchipped dogs and then if they end up at a pound or they end up whatever in rescue care, they are still traced back to the rescue and not to the original guardian. Mm -hmm. So we have had people mention that they're not so sure about allowing us to do any microchips and that's completely fair. That's a breakdown in trust. And we can only hope that we can show that we're going to be a little bit different. And we do offer another program where it's collars, leashes, and harnesses. So 
if you have an own guardian dog, we can put a collar on it and hope that that signifies to anybody driving through that this dog has a home. That okay. program has actually allowed us to stop up to five dogs being removed from a First Nations community as well because we're able to identify those are owned animals. Please leave them. Lovely. And then you've kind of touched on this as well, uh, but there is no, there's currently no legislation or governance for animal rescue. What is the biggest issue facing First Nation communities and rescue organizations when they're working together? Unfortunately, it usually comes down to a breakdown in trust and time. The big one as well in sustainability. So from the First Nation side of things, they either seem to absolutely love or they have a very big distrust of who's working within their community. And it tends to kind of run around whether, you know, they feel like they are forced to give up their animals or if they feel like their animals have been stolen. And those are obviously reasons I think anybody would get upset no matter who you were. Mm -hmm. So sometimes there's a little bit of that breakdown in trust. From the rescue side of thing, having been rescue working in a First Nations community, um, it gets really hard as far as time goes because there's a lot going on. You're intaking animals from here. You've got phone calls constantly coming in. You're stretched about as thin as you can possibly go. So for a lot of rescues, having programs like the Wormers is great, and they, they do it while they're at their food programs, but the follow-up is really difficult. It's hard for them to ensure that the dogs they might be dewormed are also going to be having that follow-up thought two weeks later to ensure that those next set of worms is going out and we don't get a new infestation. So mm -hmm. we kind of pick up the slack, so to speak, for the rescue and help them in that aspect. And make those phone calls and keep those connections and make sure that those follow-up things are done so they can really focus on what they're good at and we can all work together as a partnership and really have that trust and that open and honest communication and make sure that we're not taking animals that are not owned. Mm -hmm. uh, and then before we conclude today, I just have a few questions to wrap us up. Uh, is there anything further that we haven't covered today that you'd like to share with us? we haven't covered today is that there's a really big misconception that all animals that come off of a First Nations community or a high majority of them are badly abused. A lot of times these, these dogs are put into a vehicle and they're driven out to the city and they get out of their vehicle and they're very nervous and they're a little bit shut down and everything kind of seems to put them on edge and there's kind of that assumption that oh he's, he's lived a really hard life and he's been abused. I've mm -hmm. seen dogs that have I've been asked to remove dogs for different reasons that have been loved by the family and mm -hmm. we've brought them into care in the city and they get all shy and I'm like oh buddy it's okay right and so a lot of times we think oh you know they've had this really rough life and that's why they act this way and I ask everyone to kind of view it a little bit differently they live in a very rural setting it is quiet usually where they live and they're very free to do their own thing as we discussed mm -hmm. enrichment is one of the most important things any animal can experience I listen to, I go to seminars and listen to podcasts specifically about animal enrichment because it's one of the fastest ways to deal with any of these behaviors we see. And so mm -hmm. dogs living this roaming lifestyle, their life is full of enrichment and it's very quiet. It's kind of like having a nice quiet farm where you own the 7,000 acres around you and nobody's kind of around and every so often you see somebody. Mm -hmm. Then we bring them into this big city. Yes, they've seen a truck or a car or a van before, but they've seen one or two drive by at a time. <laughs> All of a sudden, you've got 50 vehicles, right? You've got that, that constant hum, that white noise that we have with traffic in the city. There's 
hugs coming everywhere at them and they're walking directly towards them and that is so not a way a dog properly greets the greet on diagonal mm-hmm. so we take them we take this little farm girl out of her seven thousand acres of land where she sees you know people and whatever on a very consistent but slow basis so to speak and we pop her in the middle of new york city and put her in a little box and ask her to be okay with everything mm-hmm. they're not getting the same level of enrichment and so when you meet these dogs, I, I I challenge you or I ask you to change your perception and say, oh, wow, city life is really overwhelming sometimes, isn't it? How can we help you settle? And so one of the ways that Berkeley's Place is helping ensure that all of the dogs that bars does intake from the communities we work with is that we're offering that training to their fosters so that when these dogs come in, their fosters can can recognize what's going on and help bring these dogs out of their shells in a really gentle way so that we can see who they truly are and the beautiful, most amazing dogs that they can be. That is lovely to hear. And finally, is there anything, or out of everything that we've talked today, what would you say is the biggest takeaway listeners should have? I really hope that people are able to look at the situation surrounding these dogs a little differently. I hope hearing different views and some different history helps people understand that when you when you drive through and you see a dog on the side of the road, they could be absolutely loved. They're just practicing their legal rights. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, they might be a little bit skinny and that's why we offer the dewormer. They might be fed, but if they're full of parasites and stuff, then they're not really going to get that. And so that's really kind of the educational focus. And by helping and not giving, not just being there to dictate what needs to be done, but by working within different constraints that each, and working with each unique community on what their challenges might be, we can really make some beautiful things happen and we can do it as a team and we can do it together and it can be something everyone's proud of. And in the end, our goal is to walk away five years after we walk in and not because you know, we, we're leaving people stranded or we don't want to do it anymore. We want to leave because we're not needed anymore. Because mm-hmm. everybody's able to do things on their own. They don't need our support. Well, thank you so much, Nina. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Ethan. I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss an issue that is so close to my heart. You have been listening to Pet School 101, a Berkeley's Place podcast. This has been our latest episode launching Berkeley's Place's brand new initiative, the First Nations Cooperative and Collaborative Broad Spectrum Pet Education Program. As we wrap up the podcast, we have two very important messages of thanks to make. First, we would like to thank Nina McLaughlin, Director on the Berkeley's Place Board of Directors and First Nations Liaison, for her time, insightful answers, and her commitment to supporting animals and the humans around them on a daily basis. Whether through her profession as a Karen Pryor Academy Certified Training Professional or her volunteer positions within Berkeley's Place. Secondly, we would like to thank you, the listeners. Thank you for tuning in and your interest in this new initiative for the foundation and for the support of Berkeley's Place and its mandates. We can't do what we do without all of you. We hope that you have enjoyed the podcast and will tell others about it so they can tune in as well. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to catch new episodes as they get released, whether that be on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Check back in two weeks for our next podcast. 
an interview with law firm Denton's Canada LLP and the Alberta SPCA, where we will have an informative conversation on a very important topic, but one that is not always thought of. We will talk about estate planning with special consideration for our companion animals, exotics, and livestock in the event of a life-altering change. You can find Berkeley's Place on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as the webpage www.berkeleysplace.com. Thank you.